Now turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, 7 to 10. Walk as you are. Walk as you are. A reoccurring theme, or or rather a, a consistent theme, a critically important theme found in both the Old and the New Covenants is that the people of God underwent a change in relationship and a change in position. And that change in relationship and position directly led to or or paved the way to a change in behavior and association. So you're tracking with me? Change a change in relationship and position, relationship to God, position in the world, led to a change in behavior and association. And in the Old Testament with Israel, we see Moses telling the children of Israel in Numbers 33:55, as they are poised to enter Canaan. All right, remember that this is the land that God is giving them. And Moses warned them, if you don't drive them out, they will be pricks in your eye and thorns in your side. And they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And Joshua, again, in the midst of the conquest, Joshua says, uh, uh, reiterates this in, jo- in Joshua 23.13, they will be a snare and a trap for you until you perish. And the men's group, as we have been uh, now concluded the book of Judges, we saw that this is exactly what happened. The people were pricks in their eyes and uh, uh, thorns in their sides, and they were a snare, and they were a trap, and they most certainly troubled Israel in the land. And a consequence, a byproduct of them remaining side by side, cohabitating and sharing the land with these people who were not of the covenant, was that there, it came to be that there was really no discernible difference between the redeemed people of Israel and the pagan Canaanites who were still in the land. You get to the end of Judges, and you, who would know that these are Israelites? The things that they do are, on one hand, bizarre, on the other hand, just ungodly. A people who are called by the name of Yahweh, surely didn't act like it. That was the problem with Israel. Well, we see that theme, at least the, 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 the urgency to walk uprightly and the urgency to be aware that our walk is impacted by the associations that we have. We see that theme echoed again in the New Testament, and we see it here in our passage today. The Apostle Paul, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, tells us three things. In light of our salvation, three things that we need to do if we're going to have a healthy and a robust spiritual walk. In verse 7, he will say, he will tell us to partner discriminately. Partner discriminately. Verses 8 and 9, walk Lightly, and you'll you'll see why I chose that adjective when we get there. But walk lightly, and then verse ten, discern rightly. Partner discriminately, walk lightly, discern rightly. Let's let's read what Paul has for us today. Ephesians five, seven to ten. Jack's not even here. We're doing four verses. This is like this is like fifth gear. This is like the autobahn. Oh, but they're short verses. We don't need to tell Jack that. Okay. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So our first, our first call, our first uh, uh, um, admonition that Paul has for us, he tells us to partner discriminately. Partner discriminately. He, he says right there, Therefore do not be partakers with them. And I would hope by now, whenever we see the word therefore, it just jumps off the page and say, look at me, look at me. Do you know why I'm here? I'm here because what just came before me is important if you're going to understand what comes after me. And what Paul has just said is that judgment is coming to disobedient people. Judgment is coming to disobedient people. And because of that, therefore... Believers are not to become partakers with those who are qualified by disobedience. Believers who who are to be qualified by obedience should not be partakers or partnered with those who are qualified by disobedience. As those who have been saved from their sin and, and called out from their former life of disobedience, Christians cannot then in turn partner with those who are still in their sin. As those whom God has separated from the unsaved world, we can't then partner or, or, or be partnered or participate with the unsaved worlds. We have made a pivotal switch pivotal switch every Christian has <laughs> and we're in a new fellowship we, with the Lord we have declared a new allegiance to King Jesus right he's not just an advisor right he's not just a teacher he's not just a he's not he's not a guru he's not a wise man he is as we call him Lord he is king. He is the one in authority. And we have sworn, we have declared allegiance to him. And if we are in a, in a new fellowship, a new uh, exclusive relationship with him, and subsequently, if we are in a new exclusive relationship and fellowship with his people, we can't do that. We can't do that and be joined to those who aren't his and to those who oppose him and to those who are not with him or with his people. That's like trying to go north while also going south. It is a, it is a contradiction. Or going up while going down or being hot while you're cold or whatever else Katy Perry, Katy Perry says in that song. Right? It, this is a contradiction. And thus, and again, we've, we've covered this, Je- the call to follow Jesus inherently has a fundamental denial of our former selves and our former lives, right? I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise at this point. And so, therefore, we are to discriminate who we are partakers with. And I want to make a distinction in that maybe you've heard me use the word discriminate and maybe it's really irritating you because uh, of how you've heard discriminate or discrimination used a lot in social media. To discriminate is to make a distinction. That is the, that is the textbook definition. A sub, uh, the, the second definition or an alternative definition is to make an unfair prejudiced distinction and that is how that word is used 99% of the time but i'm i'm using it in in its classic sense to make a distinction and he says do not be partakers with them and this is an interesting word partaker or if the uh, if you're using an ESV like someone in the room it says partner, and you'll notice that that's what I use in my outline. I'm just trying to be nice to Justin. 
This is an interesting word. It is used only twice in the New Testament, and both appearances are in Ephesians. Uh, Here in our verse, in in, in chapter 3, verse 6, the most reputable Greek lexicon describes this word partaker or partner as this. Uh, It is to have a share with another in, in some kind of relationship or in some uh, possession of a thing. Harold Honer, who uh, wrote one of the most distinguished commentaries on Ephesians, uh, defines this word as, as one who is a partner or an accomplice in a plot. And because I like his name, uh, a man named McGrath says it's a participation in another's rights by becoming somehow identified with that other person. And what I want you to see is that this word has the idea of being paired or linked up with others in a more than casual way, right? A more than just a happenstance kind of association. I mean, you and I may have uh, may be associated with some people, and we really don't think that much of that relationship. We don't put that much stock in that relationship. We don't really expect much of that relationship, and and those associations can really come or go. Maybe you have that with your mailman. Maybe you have that with the guy down at the QFC or whatever. But th- this word has a more intentional, a more than casual kind of acquaintanceness. It is being paired up or partnered to the extent that you are identified with someone. And you share their goals. You work towards the same ends. And you receive their rewards. And I think this, I think you can see what I'm getting at when you see how Paul used this in, in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And here it is, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Right, so a, a more than casual, a more than mere acquaintance. This is this is being linked strongly, deeply associated with someone else and being identified with them. And what Paul is saying here is that we can't walk on both sides of the fence. In, in, in the kinds of people that we that we have ties to. Right, in, in the kind of people who we are strongly or deeply involved with or associated with. We can't walk on both sides of the fence. It's one or the other. You're either called out of the world and you live like you've been called out of the world and you link arms with those who have likewise been called out of the world or you're still in the world. And since you've been called out of the world, you don't then live like the world, and I would say, why, why, why would you then link arms and stand beside and run with and invest yourselves with those who are not on the same side of the fence? So, partner discriminately. Now, right off the bat, I want you to see what Paul isn't saying. Paul isn't saying that you can't have relationships or interactions or dealings with non-Christians. Right? That, that's not what Paul's saying. And throughout history, there have been several group, groups who have taken a extra, rather extreme reaction to this, and they've retreated from the world, and they've, they've made their little enclaves, and they've tried to completely separate themselves from the world and from worldly people. Uh, you can see this in the history of the monks or the monastics. That, that's where we get the like the monasteries from. Um, during the time of the Reformation, there was you, and this this one's fascinating. It's also tragic. The Munster Rebellion, yes, like same town that the cheese is known for. The Munster Rebellion, 1534 to 35. Google that, and it is a fascinating read. And then more contemporaneous. Contemporaneously, there's the Amish. You know, maybe less extreme as the others, but the same principle. We're going to get out of the world, and we're going to we're going to have our own little holy huddle. 
Paul isn't saying that. He's not saying Christian have absolutely no association at all with anyone on the outside. He's not saying keep to yourselves, keep outsiders at arm's length and have nothing to do with them. Don't speak to them. Don't look them in the eye. Paul's not saying that at all. Because if, if he was, then how would we then function as lights in the world or be a city set on a hill, which Jesus himself calls us to be in Matthew 5? If he was calling us to have our own, to stay within the confines of our own little holy huddle, how then would we evangelize? How then would we fulfill what Jesus commanded us? Having all authority on heaven and earth given to him, how could we then obey him and go out and make disciples of the nations if we are hiding in our own little holy huddle hole? And this is why Peter clarifies himself in another book, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 12. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, and it wasn't Ephesians because that came after this, but I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, but actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Implied answer, yes, we do. So take that, people who who are so quick to slap Matthew 7, 1, as soon as you try to be biblical in response to anything. But the point is this, the professing Christian whose lifestyle is perpetuously and seriously in contradiction to the Christian profession, we're to have nothing to do with them. We're not to hang out with them. We're not to associate with them. Paul says we're not even supposed to eat with them. But normal, everyday interactions and casual associations with unbelievers, that's totally fine. Now, what had happened was, was some of the Ephesians had, had um, exceeded this. Or, or uh, they, they had begun to develop some um, more than casual associations with some of these people. With some, some of these people who were identified or qualified by immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Because when you see in verse 7, do not be partakers with them, the, the, the reference, the antecedent, are the qualifiers that we looked at in those previous verses. So these things are what identify these people. And some of the Ephesians, we don't know if it was one, we don't know if it was two, or, or, how, or if it was a whole group, but they had begun to associate with them, and they had begun to be involved with them to the point that those people were influencing the Christians. And they had begun to influence them in such a way that the Christians had begun to participate in some way, in some capacity, in some manner. These Christians had begun to be participants with these people's sins and these things which Paul just said in verse 5, Verse 3, these things that must not be named among Christians. Because of their involvement, these things were being named among the Christians. And so Paul goes to the source of this catalyst, of this influence, and he aims to cut it off. And he says, do not be partakers with them. Do not partner with them. Be mindful. Be careful. I mean, this is a thinking word, right? This is a thinking word. Use Use the gray cells and scrutinize, discern, discriminate who you link your life with 
Because who you link your life with, their habits have a, can have a, a very scary tendency to become your habits. And the way that they talk can strangely become the way you begin to talk. And the way they think and the values they have and the places they go and the things they do, those can become yours as well. A little leaven does what? What? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The whole lump. I mean, those of you who have a baking experience, I mean, there's a reason the Holy Spirit picked uh, the illustration of leaven. You don't need a lot of leaven. You You need this much leaven, and I'm pinching my fingers pretty tight. You need this much leaven to leaven the whole lump. So if you're supposed to be eating unleavened bread and you even get one little speck of it, the whole thing's leavened. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, don't lounge in the leaven. One, one man, I think, I think it was Honer, he said we can't be fooled into thinking it's harmless to become life participants with those who sin openly and fragrantly and who will encourage us to sin as well. He said the first part. I added that last part. And this, this, this made me think of some biblical example of sin's collateral damage. The Bible tells us that Lot was a righteous man. Did you know that? Lot. And if we didn't have 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8... I don't know if we would know enough. I don't know if we would be able to come to that conclusion. But the Bible says Lot was a righteous man. Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 says this. He was a righteous man who was oppressed by the sexual conduct of unprincipled men of Sodom and felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, do you know what that means? It means he didn't approve of what went... It means two things. He didn't approve of the things that he saw in the life and times of Sodom. What he saw, the things he witnessed, the things he heard, and what he was exposed to vexed him. They offended him. Those things agitated his morals And they were severely taxing on his daily peace. He saw and he heard things that he knew wasn't right. And that's one thing we know. The other thing we know was that he nevertheless joined himself in business and politics with the Sodomites. And in Genesis 13, we see him parting ways with Abraham and he chooses to, to, to pitch his tent uh, in the valley of the Jordan. Um, uh, by the time we, we see him again in Genesis 19, actually, I think the, re- was that after the rescue? Oh, that's irrelevant. In Genesis 19, chapter 1, we see that he's not just pitching his tent in the valley, he's hanging out in the gates of the city of Sodom. That tells us that he had he'd become something of a council member. He had become something of a, uh, of a city magistrate, of a, of, a, of a municipal. And so he joined himself in business and politics with these people who did tons and tons of things that vexed his righteous soul. He partnered with them undiscerningly because apparently for him, business and prosperity was the bottom line. Business and prosperity and, and, and all that comes with that kind of lifestyle was the bottom line. And because of that, because of his compromise, it's no wonder then that upon being rescued from the judgment of that city, that his wife looked back. And, and, and any, any good commentary, any good preacher who will, who will preach on this will tell you that when she looked, that, that, that idea of looking back has the idea of looking with longing looking with regret and sadness that she has lost something that she values. 
Lights, Lot's compromise had caused his family to develop a, a proclivity for the, for the privileged life. She had an maybe him too, I don't know, but she had an affinity for the preeminence and the privilege and the power and the wealth and the stuff that came from her husband's prosperity. And when all that was, was being taken away from her as they're fleeing the city and literally as the wrath of God is falling upon the heads of the city, she looks back and she was judged for that. That, that would be an example of idolatry. Lot's partnership, Lot's toleration, Lot's association with immoral people had a heavy toll not only on him but on his wife. Sin has collateral damage. And beyond his wife, do you know who else in his family was affected by the sin of Sodom? His daughters. Lot partnered himself with immoral people. Perhaps they came into his home. Perhaps they had family meetings together. His family was exposed to immorality, and it's no wonder where those young ladies got their immoral solution on how to acquire children. Immorality has collateral damage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We see another, uh, a similar example in the case of David and his son Amnon. Everyone knows the case of David and Bathsheba. That's 2 Samuel 11. No sooner is that scene resolved and concluded. You have like four verses where, where some, some narrative happens. And then in chapter 13... David's son, Amnon, commits immorality with his half-sister, Tamar. Amnon was exposed to the immorality. He saw the immorality that his father committed. No doubt that had an impact on his own view and his own tolerance for immorality. Sin has collateral damage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Not only that, yeah, yeah, there's more. Not only was Amnon affected or influenced by David's immorality, but his son, um, oh, why is his name uh, escaping me? Who, uh, silky smooth hair. Absalom. Absalom. Oh. There's a story, and I'll tell you later. Jennifer is probably laughing right now. Um, yeah. Um, okay, get back on track here. Okay, so Absalom, like Amnon, was exposed and, and, and was influenced by his father's immorality. Second Samuel 16.22, after he drove David out of town and after he usurped the throne, you know what David's advisor told him to do? Go into your father's concubines on the top of the, of the temple or on top of the uh, I'm not sure what building it was, but Second Samuel 16:22 says it was done in the sight of all Israel. David committed immorality. His first son then committed immorality, and then his third son committed immorality. Sin has collateral damage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Be careful who you partner with. Be careful what you allow yourself to be exposed to because of your associations. Be careful who, pour, who you allow to pour into your life and whose actions will have an impact on you, whose advice you take, whose counsel you heed. Be wise who you are vulnerable with. Be wise who you come to depend on. And here's, I'm glad that there's some young people in here. Listen up. Be wise who you marry. Scrutinize. All, all the parents are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be wise who you marry. 
discriminate greatly. Don't let, don't let who you marry be an, an impulsive choice. Discriminate greatly. Scrutinize. Pray. Think hard. And if you can, wait. Be careful. I, I would say no, no other choice in your life, save for the, for the, for the uh, choice to respond in obedient faith to Jesus, no other choice is as weighty as who you will decide to marry. I, I, boys, are you listening? Do you hear what I'm saying? Be careful who you marry. Be careful who you marry. The scripture says that you need to sacrifice to your, for your wife and you need, to, you need to lay down your life in loving service to her like Jesus did for the church. Save yourself some trouble and marry a wife that's easy to sacrifice for. And, and, and ladies, ladies, the Bible tells you to submit to your husband in, in all reverence and respect and, to, and to, to, to submit to him as you would to the Lord. Find a man who makes wise choices and makes submitting to easy. You too. You guys feel the spotlight yet? You guys too. Well, not you, Steve. You're already married. Don't presume upon missionary dating. It does not work. Do not presume upon the grace of God to save your unsaved spouse. I, I'm, I, I'm, we're Baptistish here, so we don't bet, we don't gamble. But if I were, I would gamble that someone who says in his heart, I will change that person, I will change him, I'll see that he comes around, you are fooling yourself. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In all likelihood, and the statistics support this, more than you influencing them for the good, they're going to influence you for the worse. I have two friends. Uh, one who made a shipwreck of his faith because he married the wrong person. The other one, almost as bad. Be careful. Be scrutinizing, be thoughtful, be considerate, be discriminatory in who you partner with. So the second thing Paul has for us today is the need for us to walk as children of light. He's he's calling us to walk in light of who and what we are, and that is children of light. And so that's why I say walk lightly. Walk light. Okay, Daniel gets it. Walk lightly. I was, I was, I was aiming for short adjectives. Now here in verses uh, 8 and 9, Paul's drawing a contrast between the believer's past and present conditions. He says, you were formerly darkness, verse 8. You were darkness. Did you know that? You were darkness. Your past life was characterized by darkness, but that really doesn't, to, to say that you were characterized by it, it isn't what Paul says and doesn't really capture the punch that Paul, uh, that Paul is reeling. He says, he, notice he doesn't say that you were in darkness, which that would be true. It would be entirely accurate for him to say you were in darkness, but he doesn't say that. What does he say? You were Darkness, that's intense. You were darkness. Darkness didn't merely define you, you embodied it. If Webster had his illustrated dictionary when Paul wrote this, he would say, look up darkness, you'll find your picture. You embodied it. And when he's talking about darkness, this is, this is you know, this, we understand this is symbolic uh, symbolic language for, for ignorance and godless thinking. And he says, you embodied ignorant and godless thinking. And you know what that did? That led you to ignorant and godless living. Look, look back up, back at chapter 4, 17 and 18. If you have to scroll up or turn your page, 
He says in 4.17, Paul says that before you were regenerated, before God turned on the light in your heart, he said you and every believer, before being saved, he says we walked in the futility of our minds. We had futile minds. We had minds that didn't work right. Being darkened in our understanding. He goes on to say we were ignorant. He goes on to say we were hardened in our hearts. And then finally we were calloused towards sin. Not a flattering description, but a truthful one. The unbeliever doesn't live his life in some neutral zone before God. The, the, the claim of spiritual neutrality is a myth. Before God changes him, unless God changes him, every man, every woman, every child is a well of darkness. David says in Psalm 58.3 that the wicked are estranged from the womb, from birth. They go out, they come out speaking lies. Did you ever notice you don't have to teach your kids how to lie? You don't have to teach your kids how to manipulate. You don't have to teach your kids how to misbehave. You have to teach them how to behave. Man is a well. He is naturally a well of darkness and he produces darkness and he spreads it wherever he goes. And as he's going to and fro, spreading his darkness, whatever light God would have brought into the world, man's trying to blot it out. He's trying to cover up or, or, or blot out the light with his darkness. And you, say, you might say, well, Aaron, I know some good people. I know some very moral people and, you know, they're not Christian, but they're very moral. They're very upstanding and they're good people. No, they're not. Romans 3 says there is no good people and you only say they're good because you're not, you don't know where to look. You don't know where to look to find darkness. The Bible says all men are in the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.3. And he says so right here. They are darkness. And this is precisely where you and I were, but praise God, not anymore. Praise God, not anymore. Praise God that this is our past. Praise God that ignorant and godless thinking that led to ignorant and godless living is our past. Those of you who are a little older and have had the... Those of you who have gotten to taste the consequences of your sin know how good it is that that's not your past anymore. This... This is our this was our past and it's not our present because as Colossians 1:13 goes on to say a transfer was made a transfer was made you and I were transferred from one kingdom to another and you know what kingdom we were transferred out of Colossians 1:13 says the domain of darkness the domain of ignorant and godless thinking and ignorant and godless living. The domain that would have God's goodness and God's light and God's love and God's purity squelched. We were taken out of that kingdom and we were put into another kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus, who John says twi twice, by the way, is light. His kingdom is a kingdom of light because he is light. John 1 9 says that he is the light, come, he is the true light coming into the world. John 8 12 says that he is the light of the world. And 1 Peter 1 2 9 says that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
he has put this he has put his light in you and he has made you his child a child of light and being a child of light you are called to walk in the light and so church there are two things one of two things that we do we either cast shadows on others when we sin be it through poor attitudes, be it through when we get angry or when we have fits of selfishness or when we're foolish or when we bend the truth, abuse the truth, when we steal, when we do any number of the things that Paul's talked about in the last, in the last two chapters. We cast shadows on others when we sin. God forbid when we compromise in immorality and impurity and covetousness through those things, we cast shadows on other people that makes it easier for them to move into sin. And like Lot did with his family, like David did to his sons, because of us, others might have an easier time sinning. May that never be in God's people. May that never be here. May that never be in you. So we either do that I, by, by our remaining sin or indwelling sin, or we could say indwelling darkness. I don't really know if I like that. I'm going to say indwelling sin. We cast shadows that make it easier for others to sin or by walking in the light. We actually do the opposite and we hinder others' darkness and we encourage them to likewise walk in light. Here's the point. Whatever you do, whether good or bad, whether righteous or unrighteous, what you do has an effect on others that in all probability, I would say most of us probably haven't thought about that kind of, about the level and the magnitude of impact that we have on those around us. Now notice how Paul illustrates the fruit of our walking in light. He lists three qualities or three, um, yeah, qualities of God. He lists all goodness and righteousness and truth. You see that in verse 9? All goodness and righteousness and truth. These are qualities. These are things that God possesses and these are, these are ways in which God acts. Ways that, that in which God expresses Himself. God is good. It doesn't really make sense. It's not good English, but God is all good. This word for good has the idea of... of um, whether it's a thing, whether it's an exercise, an activity, or whatever, it has the idea of something that's beautiful, something that's pleasant, something that's beneficial, or even it can even be used to, to, to talk about peace. God is goodness. He is all goodness. And everything He does is good. He is also righteous. And everything he does is right. Abraham says in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Implied answer, of course he will. Everything he does is right. Every, every position he upholds is right. And every, every command, every requirement, and even every dispensation of blessing and judgment is right. Absolutely everything He does is right because He is right. God has never said, God has not ever once said what I say far too frequently, whoops! I wish I had done that differently. Differently. I wish I had done something when I did nothing. I wish I had done nothing when I did something. God has 
God has never done a whoops. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or have to repent. And that goes to, that, 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 that applies to the things he says as well as the things he does. God never has to go, well, hmm, I, sh- I wish I had done that differently. Whoops. He is also truthful. He is utterly truthful. He is by our measure, unfathomably truthful. God doesn't lie. You know why? Because He can't lie. Well, are you saying there's something God can't do? If you're, if you're talking about God being consistent with Himself, yeah, I'm saying that. Before you try to pull out some metaphysical uh, inquiries, like uh, can God uh, create a rock so heavy that He can't lift it, like, don't even go there. God does not lie because he cannot lie, but because to do so would be to contradict himself. Hebrews 6.18 plainly says, it's impossible for God to lie. And if he does lie, then that verse is a lie. Here's the point. As we walk in the light... And as you and I come here week after week, and as you sit under this pulpit, and as you open up your Bible in your, in your own quiet time, and as you, as you memorize Scripture and you, you submit the Word of God to your heart and your mind and you meditate on it, and as you, uh, week by week, as you're cheap, chipped away by the Holy Spirit, and as you grow in Christ's likeness and you learn to walk the way Jesus walked, and as you learn to talk the way Jesus talked, and and as, as you respond to all the things in your life as He would, or, or as He would have you respond, things like responding to the joys and trials of having children and your job and realizing your own failures and having your own limitations stare you in the face, as well as being presented with opportunities to impact other people, both in the church, in your family, in your neighborhood, in the community, as you have opportunities to give God glory and talk about His kindness, as you have opportunity to employ your giftedness to, to whomever God has positioned you or to whomever God has positioned them to benefit from your giftedness. As you do those things, you are walking in light. And as you walk in light, you begin to show His attributes. And mark this, mark this, I think this is cool. As you walk in light, you reflect God's light. And as that happens, you become bastions of His goodness and His righteousness and His truth. I think that's cool. As you walk in His light, you become bastions. You become ambassadors of light. Now remember that walking is a metaphor for how you live your life. So what we're not talking about here is we're not talking about (coughs) doing a little spiritual something here, doing a little spiritual something over there, checking off my list and calling it good. Paul is saying we have to live our whole lives in God's light because He has made us light. That is what we are. Paul is saying walk as you are. And that means a lot of things practically change when placed side by side with who you were. We think differently. And what we tolerate, us, changes. And can I step on your toes? What entertains us, changes. If I can be bold for a minute, let me say this. If your Netflix and if your Spotify playlist is absolutely no different from your neighbors who are not saved, something's wrong. 
what you tolerate, what, what entertains you, and what you desire, the goals you make, the pursuits you have, and the, pri- and the priorities that you have, and, and the sacrifices that you're willing to make in order to pursue your pursuits, all of those things change now that you are light. And I, you know what, especially for, I can understand that for, for a young Christian, or maybe for a Christian who's just been, I don't know, coasting through life and coasting through their Christian walk, and they, 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 they hear this, this, this admonition to be discerning and to be, to be discriminatory and to, 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 to really think things through, it can be a little overwhelming, Especially in light of the fact this is supposed to be our lifestyle, right? I mean, that's, that's a high call. That's a high call. Well, to that end, Paul helps us by telling us what our, what our light walking needs to be marked by. And he says it needs to be marked by discernment. Verse 10. If we're to walk lightly, we need to discern rightly. And discernment... Or as John MacArthur says, discernment, with two Z's, is the ability to tell one thing from another. And it's really synonymous with, with discriminate. It is, to, it, is, it is to tell one thing from another, especially when the difference is subtle. It's the ability to tell one thing from something that's almost not that thing, if, if that makes sense. And someone's saying, well, wait a minute. Matthew 7, 1 says we're not supposed to be judging. We're not to be discriminating. Aaron, your whole sermon is bunk. Well, <coughs> if you've thought about, or if you've had someone throw Matthew 7, 1 at you like I have, I would say, read through to verse 5, where Jesus says, First remove the log from your eye, and then you will be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying, don't judge. Jesus is saying, be careful how you judge, because how you judge may come around and bite you in the tuchus. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge unrighteously. When you judge, do it rightly. So here we have another thinking word. You could even say a judging word. Discern rightly. There are many things in this world, movements, philosophies, voices, um, agencies, agendas, uh, plenty of, of wicked deeds that God does not approve, nor does He smile on. And you don't have to read far in the Old Testament before you start seeing things like, and -and so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's actually the last verse, and it hits like a bombshell. That's the last verse in the whole David and Bathsheba incident. The whole time you're wondering, where's God? Is he not aware this is going on? Very last verse. And what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. There are things... There are, there's no shortage of things that he does not approve or smile on. And this is, which is why John tells us, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't be naive. Don't assume everyone out there is just wants what's best for you. No one's going to hoodwink you. Test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And for us to just stroll through our Christian walk without thinking, without, without looking where we're going, without assessing how we are walking, and just hoping for the best, that is a fool's errand. 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil's out to make you fall in sin. Ephesians 2 says that the world walks according to the devil. So the world wants to see you fall in sin. And if, you, if you're not aware uh, of how the world is pushing for you to not just tolerate sin, you know, like for the last 20-something years, the big push was don't judge and tolerate it. Now they want you to accept it. They want you to celebrate it. 
and to laud it. The world wants you to fall in sin. And if that's not enough, you have your own indwelling sin that remains in your unredeemed flesh that wants you to sin. We live in Romans 7. There are lots of options and choices in our path and market. Not every choice is pleasing to God. And if a Christian is going to walk successfully in the light, he has to start thinking seriously. He has to start thinking critically about what he needs to do. And what he needs to do is to govern his thinking and his assessing process according to what pleases the Lord. He says, try to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. That uh, lexicon I told you about defines it like this. To make a critical examination of something to determine the genuineness or the suitability. And then I added, or the acceptability of a thing. And I guarantee this, you or your parents make critical examinations when they go to the store and they decide what fruits and what vegetables and what meats to get. And there, are, there could be certain qualities about those products that, that would make that thing unsuitable to bring home and to feed you or be fed to you. 1 Timothy 3.10 refers to the testing or the examination of aspiring elders and deacons who should only be approved to their offices if they meet requirements. So this word to, to, to learn has the idea of, of a critical examination. Every thought, every word, every response, every action, every reaction needs to be put on the examination table and scrutinized. And we have to be a people who ask ourselves, is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to say, is the way that I'm about to respond to my wife because she did such and such, or the way that I'm about to respond to my kid because he or she did such and such, especially the, the way I'm about to do this when I, because I think no one's looking. Well, there's a dinger. Everything we do needs to be passed through the litmus test, and we have to ask ourselves, Will this please my Savior and King Jesus? I mean, what do we call him again? Lord? He's, he's going to, he, he, he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is going to judge the living and the dead. And I would dare say that whether he finds something, whether, whether he finds something pleasing or not, might be a worthy factor uh, in my decision-making process. Would you agree? Would you agree? Okay. So as we train ourselves to partner discriminately and to walk lightly and discern rightly, Your Christian walk will strengthen. Your Christian walk will improve. And your sin will be mortified. And, and, and those around you, your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, though they will be edified and encouraged. But beloved, this is what makes it so worth it in the end. It's great that, that your Christian life is better. It's great that you're, that you're having victory over sin and that your family life is improving that's great, but what is best, what is absolutely best will be the approving welcome of the Lord Himself when He says to you on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. I promise you, hearing those words from the Lord will exceed any joy in this life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for saving us. Thank you for saving a lot like us. It was a very gracious thing you did. And scripture tells us you, you uh, being our great high priest, you live to intercede for us daily because of our 
weaknesses which remain. I, I ask, I, I place my arms around this, this wonderful congregation. I put my arms around them and I, on their behalf, I ask, help us to walk as children of light. Help us to walk as we are. Amen.